There is a wonderful old film version of the play Inherit the Wind, starring Spencer Tracy. I know some of you have probably seen this film, and maybe some of you have seen the play Inherit the Wind. It's kind of an American classic. It tells the story of the Scopes trial in 1925, in which a Tennessee biology teacher was prosecuted for teaching evolution in his science class. He was taken to court for violating Tennessee state law. And so there was this amazing trial. It was just created all kinds of interest uh, around the United States and even around the world as this science teacher uh, was prosecuted for teaching evolution. And in the play, uh, in the film version, we see Spencer Tracy playing Clarence Darrow, the famous lawyer, who defends the school teacher with a combination of reason and logic along with some humor and a real sense of humanity. And by the way, just to let you know, Clarence Darrow once was a guest speaker in our church. It would be good to find out more about that. He also uh, apparently narrated a film about evolution that was shown in our church in 1932. And the announcement of that is what you have on the cover of your service. That's from the builder in 1932 announcing that we're going to show this film. The Universalist Men's Club is showing the film uh, that is narrated by Clarence Darrow. In the play Inherit the Wind and the movie, the creationist side looks almost ridiculous, maybe not quite ridiculous, but at least very out of step with the advance of human culture. And Clarence Darrow, in one famous scene, interrogates the famous biblical scholar and presidential candidate, William Jennings Bryan in such a way as to make him look foolish. But the conservatives do win the trial, and the young man was found guilty. There was a tiny fine after all this. At the very end of the movie, we see Clarence Darrow leave the empty courtroom. It's all over. The newspaper people have all left. Everybody's gone. And Clarence Darrow picks up a copy of Darwin's Origin of Species, and then he also picks up the Bible, and he puts the two of them under his arm together and exits the courtroom. And it's a fascinating little scene, and it sort of implies that he thinks they both have value and can coexist in the world. It's a great film classic. If you haven't see it, seen it yet, I recommend it. The movie that was shown in 1932 called The Mystery of Life took place during the ministry of Clinton Lee Scott, who was minister here during the 1930s. He was a signer of the Humanist Manifesto and a supporter of the evolution theory. Our church newsletter voiced support for evolution as far back as 1882. 
There's an article, Kathy Carter found this, there's an article in the Builder from 1882 uh, saying that we as universalists uh, support the idea of evolution, and then the, the author, it's, I'm not sure who the author is, but the author says that it can certainly coexist along with the idea of a universalist God. So that's 1882. But of course, when Darwin published his book, many people felt very threatened by the idea of evolution and natural selection because it seemed to contradict the story of creation in the Bible. And so there was immediately dissent and upset and conflict, and to some extent, our culture is still involved in that discussion now, interestingly enough. It's still, it's still, it's not settled in our culture. The way I would interpret the conflict is that it is a crisis about meaning. It's a crisis about meaning. If the Genesis story is not literal truth, and other biblical stories are not literal truth either, Will this lead to a loss of meaning in life? Especially for those who have taken the Bible as their guide over generations and generations. And it is for this reason, I think, that some creationists cling so tenaciously to a literal view of Genesis that does conflict with science it conflicts just as long as we insist on a literal interpretation. Once we let go of that, then all kinds of things are possible. I do not believe the creationists can win this debate. I don't think there's any chance of the creationists winning this debate in the long run. However, it could still go on for quite a while. And that seems to be what's happening. But science is going to carry the day, at least on the issue of the facts. So, does this victory for science mean that life is meaningless? That there's no longer any meaning in life? Or, to put the question another way, are there sources of meaning in the scientific story of evolution, and I mean evolution in the broad sense, not just biological, but in the way it's used commonly in our culture to mean the whole scientific story of how we've gotten here. We human beings are meaning seekers. We want life to have meaning. And we work on that project all the time. And it would be very upsetting, I think, and is for many people, to think that life is meaningless, although there are some folks who embrace that and say that that's fine. But in general, I think human beings search for meaning. And we will keep on looking until we find it, even if the search leads us in some dubious pathways. So if evolution is true, and all signs point to that conclusion, will life then be meaningless? 
One of the best answers to this question that I know of is given by a guy by the name of Michael Dowd, who spoke in this very sanctuary about five or six years ago. I know some of you were there to hear him. Michael Dowd is a former evangelical preacher who became convinced as a young man that evolution is true and then became, along with his partner Connie Barlow, an evangelist for evolution. And Michael and Connie travel around in a van around the United States and other parts of the world as well, and they give um, presentations and workshops about evolution and religion. And that's what they do. And they are like uh, missionaries or prophets or something like that. They're, they're full of energy and they've got, they've got a, a really powerful message to tell. And it was wonderful to have them here just after we read a wonderful book called Thank God for Evolution, which uh, a number of us studied a few years ago. So the overarching of Dowd's work is that the story of evolution does not lead to a loss of meaning, but on the contrary, is a story with profound spiritual depth. This one great story, E.O. Wilson calls it the epic of evolution. Lauren Isley calls it the immense journey. Aldo Leopold called it the odyssey of life. According to Michael Dowd, this is a story that contains all other stories. It's the inclusive story of what's happened in this universe. It includes the story of the jellyfish and the story of the Holocaust. It includes the story of the civil rights movement and the story of the dinosaurs. It includes the story of all the religions and it includes the story of the Super Bowl. It is the story of an ongoing creation as evolution continues to unfold. It's a story that is open to multiple interpretations, as all good stories are, by the way, open to multiple interpretations. Michael Dowd calls it a meta-religious story, which contains all the religious stories within it. It includes science and religion and theater and literature. And it is also a story of how all our stories have come into being and changed over time. It's that story too. So it's the story of all stories. So the great story, the scientific story of creation, is a magnificent saga of the birth and development of the universe, how from an infinitesimal speck that somehow included all of us in some form or another, or the possibility of us being here, 
This universe exploded into galaxies, planets, animals, fish, stars, ladybugs, and even human beings. And we came out of that, like the reading says. We came out of that. That's who we are. We are the stardust. In many ways, I think this story is more amazing than the Genesis story. It's really, I don't know what to say. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, a magnificent story. It's beautiful and poetic in its own way. Whereas the Genesis story, which has its value, is clearly a myth of a pre-scientific age. That does not mean that that story has no value. That doesn't mean that at all. But it is not a recording of the facts accurately. So if there could be creation with no God, does that take away the meaning of life? Which is what many people feel. And so they have anxiety about that. Wouldn't everything just be random and empty? So I want to propose several ways we could answer that question. Because there's some alternatives here. There are usually alternatives. One way is to hold on to the literal Genesis story. Just hang on to that and don't let it go and say that is the answer. And many people have chosen this, this possibility. I want to suggest that at this point in human history, that appears to be a dead end. I don't think that holds up over time. But I certainly feel that people are free to do that, but since it doesn't square with the facts, it does not appear to be a wise path. Another way to resolve this is to say that evolution is true, but that God is present in evolution. So that's another main pathway that one could take. And this actually is a pretty popular alternative in our world. And actually, Michael Dowd belongs to that group. He belongs to that group. From what I've been um, able to research, a good percentage of Christians view it that way. They accept evolution, but say that God is present in them. Whether you choose this view or not, that, this path really does resolve the conflict because the people who choose that path are not out there trying to rewrite our textbooks or any of that. They're not in conflict with science. They just have a, a religious sense that there is God still present in them. A third option is to find meaning in the way evolution works without recourse to God. And that is attractive for many people as well. So if you took God out of the picture, would there be something left that would be meaningful? That's the question. Michael Dowd proposes that there are five qualities of the universe 
that form what some people call the arrow of evolution, a sense of directional movement of the universe. So this is one of the big questions. Is there a direction in the way things evolve? Is there a direction in that? So he proposes that there are five qualities of the universe that form a direction that he and others sometimes refer to as the arrow of evolution. It's going in a particular way. The first quality is the movement toward greater diversity. The universe keeps producing more and more diverse creatures. So that seems to be part of what's happening, is this movement towards diversity. The second one is greater complexity. This process produces more and more complex creatures. I remember Richard Dawkins, by the way, speaking at Bradley about 10, 12 years ago, and he talked about this, interestingly enough, that the, the evolutionary process produces more and more complex creatures. The third one, according to Michael Dowd, is that the universe produces greater awareness over time. Evolution creates creatures with greater possibilities for consciousness. Now, we are examples of some of those creatures, but it doesn't mean that we're the only ones or that we are the only ones that could be, but we are, in fact, examples. A horse has more awareness than a turtle, in some sense, by being more complex and being able to have more complex experiences. A human being, at least as far as we know, has more awareness than a flea. Again, because we're more complex creatures and we can create more subtle uh, experiences. The fourth quality is greater speed of change. The change that is taking place in the universe is an accelerating change. It's moving faster. Think of how technology has changed in the last 20 years and then compare that to the previous 50,000 years. So it's an accelerating speed of change. As Francis Moore LePay once said in one of my favorite quotes, things are getting better and better and worse and worse, faster and faster. That's that quality of accelerating change. The fifth quality of the universe, according to Michael Dowd, is that the universe moves toward greater intimacy with itself. When creatures evolved eyes, it gave the universe a way to see itself. Richard Dawkins writes this, he says, it seems that life, at least as we know it on this planet, is almost indecently eager to evolve eyes. And if there is life on other planets around the universe, it is a good bet that there will also be eyes. There are only so many ways to make an eye, and life as we know it may well have found them all. So we human beings are part of this process of the universe growing in intimacy with itself. 
Or as Carl Sagan said, we are a way for the cosmos to know itself. So, at least according to this model, the universe moves towards greater diversity, greater complexity, greater awareness, greater speed of change, and greater intimacy or knowledge with itself. And we, as complex human creatures, are able to understand this process and because we've gotten so powerful with our technology, we actually have a significant role in how that process unfolds in the future. We are, we are players in this because our powers have become significant. Already, we have changed the climate on our planet. Already, we have done that, which changes the whole pattern of life for, for billions of creatures, including us. We have caused an, an unprecedented amount of extinctions on the planet as our way of life wipes out species at an alarming rate. So we are players in this continuing evolution of creatures on the planet. And once we get better spaceships, we'll extend that influence. I mean, Star Trek tells us all about that. <laughs> so we have tremendous technical knowledge, but our growth in wisdom does not appear to be keeping up with the exponential growth in technical abilities. We have a wisdom shortage with a technological surplus, maybe we could say. So is this not a spiritual problem? We might look to religions to contribute to the solution of, of these major planetary problems, but in many cases the religions have been part of the problem rather than part of the solution, despite the fact that they've done many wonderful things as well. The parliament of the world's religions last October that some of us attended points to a better way for religions to participate in cultural evolution. There were 10,000 religious people gathered in that meeting to consider the huge problems of climate change, war, violence, poverty, and inequality without any resort, as far as I could tell, to having any war with science. I, I just, I did not observe that anywhere. That, in that place, that war did not seem to be going on. What a, what a great thing to just, you know, lay down your sword and shield about that. That's not a fight worth having. It's, it's, it's not helpful. So that path for religion is possible and it's available at any time. So evolution is the way the world works. We are part of that process. And though I know it's painful for some people to let go of the pre-scientific world, the new story of the scientific view of creation is just as magnificent, just as astounding, and just as awesome, and 
maybe more so than the old stories. The old stories still have their value. They do tell us things about our lives and the deep questions of our lives, but their value is not in being factual. That's not the value. The value is poetic. It's about meaning. But it's not the results of an experiment. The new story is not a meaningless story, but like all stories, it's open to interpretation, as long as one doesn't change the facts. It can include God or a goddess, as Michael Dowd creates an evolutionary theism. It can also be theistic by way of systems like process theology, it is possible to do that. And it also can be meaningfully interpreted without reference to any God. Either way, it is the most amazing thing going on. It's a vast creative process, and we are both the results of that process, and now we are powerful co-creators of that process. That's, that's the role that we're in. If you want to feel what that's like, just go out in the woods for a while and just listen you know, and look and pay attention and see what's going on out there. So we have a huge responsibility to use our significant powers to influence the evolution of billions of creatures including ourselves, towards sustainable lives on this planet and beyond this planet as well. May the universe, as it observes itself through our eyes and the eyes of other creatures, find in that observation a scintillating story and be able to say in new and exciting ways what the old myths say, too, that indeed it is very good. Would you join me, please, in our closing song, which is in the Teal Book, number 1064, The Blue Boat Home. This is a song that uses an older tune that many of us know, but with a new set of words. <laughs>